Welcome to Not Your Boyfriend's Sports Show. I'm Bryn. And I'm Maeve. And today on the show, women's hockey and Missy Franklin go pro. We've got a March Madness update, plus everything you need to know before baseball begins. And then, where does femininity belong in sports? We take you on a tour through the spectrum. And finally, we'll introduce our newest segment, Fierce Ladies! Okay, so Bryn, start us off. Women's hockey, going pro? Yeah, uh, this week it was announced that there will be a National Women's Hockey League started in northeast in the northeast of the U.S. Um, currently, uh, the only National Women's Hockey League is the Canadian League, um, which was founded in 2007 and includes five teams, including one in Boston. So <laughs> we always find a way to sneak in there. How do you feel about being designated as, as a Canadian, babe? <laughs> I'm not sure that that's the point. <laughs> All right. Well, in this new league that's supposed to start in October, there are four teams in the Northeast. The Buffalo Buttes, the Boston Pride, the New York Riveters, and the Connecticut Whale. You know, that's actually a nice little balance of kind of paying homage to some more uh, feminine qualities, but also having some wear whales. (laughs) That's a nice juxtaposition. I love it. I love it. What's interesting about this league as opposed to the Canadian league is that uh, the teams would be able to pay their players. They don't get paid in the Canadian league? In the Canadian league, the league pays for travel, ice rental, and uniform costs, but it doesn't cover any equipment or anything. They get no salary. They have to make time to play the games around their work schedules. So it's it's pretty crazy and like very prohibitive most people can't afford to do that I'd call that like semi-pro at best yeah so this league it's kind of funny because they say they can pay their players but when I looked at it it said that the um the salary cap for each team is two hundred and seventy thousand dollars total for the entire team so like when I saw that I was like so each player like that's not two thousand two hundred seventy thousand dollars per player that's right. per that's team. That's for the whole team. So no one's going to make a, a real salary from this. There's no way that any person could live off of what they're going to get paid for this. <sighs> well, I guess we'll have to keep a close eye on this and see. Yeah, for now, I feel like you got to be optimistic. Like, they seem to think they have enough resources to start this up and, and hopefully expand in the next few years. So we'll just see how wait their and see. TV contracts go and things like that. Yeah. All right, well, one female athlete who certainly will not be hard-pressed for money is Missy Franklin, badass four-time Olympic gold medalist who stole our hearts in 2012 when she was just a wee 17-year-old. So she announced uh, recently that she's going pro. After the Olympics, she chose to retain her amateur status in order to finish out her high school season. She really wanted to win the state championship with her high school. And then she also wanted to have a little taste of college, so she went to California and has been swimming there for two years. Not a bad place to be. (laughs) I guess not. Though, if you're in a pool, what difference does it really make? (laughs) True. But, so, it's estimated that she has given up about $5 million to remain an amateur, but she's totally behind her choice. She says, I would make the same decision a hundred times over again. But there are some concerns because Missy has been known to thrive off of that team environment. 
and she gets a lot of energy from her teammates. And so one concern is whether being alone in a pool, kind of endlessly swimming laps, a la Michael Phelps, um, well, yeah, it's a whole different mindset to be like swimming for your team versus swimming for your paycheck. Totally. It's crazy. So, but, you know, best of luck to Missy and I can't wait to see what happens and, you know, go get it, girl. Earn that money. Yeah, girl. Okay, so it's been two weeks since our last episode. A ton has happened in March Madness. Like, give more us more than I could possibly recap, but... Where we, where we sit right now is the final four teams in the men's bracket are Kentucky, Wisconsin, Duke, and Michigan State. All number one seeds except for Michigan State, who was ranked seventh coming into the tournament. Wow. So it's one, 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 and seven. <laughs> Sadly, our hotness bracket did not hold up very well. Oh, man. <laughs> as Villanova and Virginia both made pretty early exits from the tournament. <laughs> Um, but our number three pick was Kentucky, and they're still in it. <laughs> well, they were probably going to be in it no matter how hot they were. Yeah, I would say Kentucky's the team to root for, both in hotness and in talent. But there were some big upsets that happened in the last two weeks. Um, UAB, a number 14 seed, beat Iowa State, a number three. Wow. Georgia State, a number 14, beat Baylor, a number three. Um, that 14-3 combo coming at you. Yeah, I guess what that shows is that like the number one and two seeds were really good, but it kind of dropped off after <laughs> that. <laughs> and then you got some great upsets out of it. Well, it was a really exciting week of March Madness, and I read a lot of articles that sort of said, you know, despite all of the problems that we totally see and admit in college sports in terms of paying athletes and everything like that, when it comes down to sports as entertainment that you could not beat this kind of entertainment no it's exciting all the way through so games continue on saturday april 4th from indianapolis um and the final is monday april 6th so everyone stay tuned for that but on the women's side surprise surprise (laughs) the final four includes uconn oh (laughs) Um, who won their quarterfinal matchup against Texas 105 to 54. That's not like that's not something that should be happening in the championship tournament. Like, no, the women's bracket has got to work itself out and get some more compelling games going on. Yeah, it, I mean, it looks like UConn's to lose at this point, but we can tune in for the championship on Tuesday, April 7th coming to you from Tampa, Florida. So just get your your Yukon gear out. (laughs) And and, my sunscreen. uh, (laughs) Might as well join that bandwagon. All right, well, I'm going all number one dominant teams then, it seems. That's good. You are really (laughs) going for the long shot there. Well, should we talk a little baseball? Yeah. Tell me everything you know. All right. Well, as we discussed last week, we're even closer to opening day. Uh, my excitement level is just growing and growing. So for the listeners out there, there are a few interesting uh, rules changes going on that are going to take effect this season. Hmm. First of all, there's a new baseball commissioner, Rob Manfred. His big mission is he's obsessed with pace of play. So the average baseball game is notoriously slow. Uh, It goes about 
three hours long, even more. Yeah, I'm always getting exhausted. Yeah, well, sitting in the sun for that long. Rob here is concerned about fans like you. Thanks, Rob. <laughs> so he's trying to pick up the pace of play, and so they've instituted some new rules in order to do this. First of all, batters now have to keep one foot in the batter's box in between pitches. So they can't step out and fiddle with their gloves and step back in and step out again. But anyway, other things to pay attention to to pick up the pace of play. Um, There will now be timers in between innings. So for locally televised games, there's going to be 2 minutes and 25 seconds. And for nationally televised games, 2 minutes and 45 seconds. But all this is really just to say Rob Manfred is serious about pace of play. And he needs to win back those viewers who don't want to watch a three-hour game. Um, And the threat of a pitch clock is real, meaning that there will be, uh, perhaps if none of this goes very well, they might think of instituting a countdown clock, kind of like a shot clock in basketball. That's intense. Yeah. So he's really serious about it. Um, But besides that, kind of more broadly, there's a number of other policies and changes that are combining to make baseball really interesting lately. So in a bygone era, if a team didn't win at least 90 games, they really had no realistic chance at the playoffs. But now, if you're in the mid to high 80s, anything can happen. And this is for a couple reasons. First of all, since 2012, there are two wildcard teams in each league. So baseball, a quick recap, baseball is divided into two leagues, the American and the National League. Each league has three divisions, East, Central, and West. And the winners of... Each of those divisions go to the playoffs, and now there are two wildcard teams. So the two teams in the league with the next best records play a a one-game decision game to see who goes to the playoffs. And it's really paying off. For instance, last year the San Francisco Giants won the World Series, and they got into the playoffs because they were that second wildcard team. Whoa. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, so it makes things more exciting, definitely. But the other thing that's happening is that since 2003, there's been what's called uh, a luxury tax. Uh, It allows teams to reinvent themselves in just a couple years. So, In terms of, like, the players they bring in? Or what are we talking in terms of reinvention? Yeah, so unlike the NFL, where each team has the same bankroll on purpose so that to maintain competitive play so that, you know, this phrase, any given Sunday, there could be a a good matchup between any two teams that doesn't exist in baseball. So anyway, to try to bring some more equity back to the game, the MLB instituted what's called the competitive balance tax. And so if a team's payroll goes over a certain amount, and in 2015, that amount is $189 million, (laughs) then they have to pay a tax on the amount that they go over. And if you go over multiple years in a row, the percentage you have you have to pay goes up accordingly. So baseball fans call this the Yankees tax because the Yankees have paid it every single year. And in 2012, it cost them $18.9 million. So it just goes to show that like some teams just don't give a F. <laughs> we can swear. We put the explicit tag That's on true. our podcast. Okay, you're right. Maybe next time. I'll work up my nerve. <laughs> um... Anyway, so this tax makes teams obviously handle their payroll differently, makes them trade differently. And so in the past couple of years, you're seeing teams really rebuild themselves in just a couple seasons, if not one major offseason. And mm-hmm. so it's really adding to kind of the competitiveness of baseball. Cool. So what team should we be watching out for this season? Well, hometown heroes, Washington Nationals, uh, they are the team to beat this year. 
They acquired pitcher Max Scherzer. He's a Cy Young Award winner from 2013. So they now have five really solid starting pitchers. And defensively, they look strong too. I've always loved Rendon since last year when he came in and made made a big always splash. Always loved him since last since year. Since last year. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was love at first catch. <laughs> um, so love at first double play, maybe. Okay. Um, I buy that. <laughs> so this year he'll be playing at third, and they're moving Ryan Zimmerman, who is really the foundation of this team. He's been with the Nats since 08 when the franchise started up again. And Zimmerman's going to get shifted back to first base. And, I mean, so long as Bryce Harper doesn't run into any more fences, I think I think we'll be pretty solid in the outfield as well. We've got Jason Worth. He is a literal icon of the Nationals. And just a beautiful specimen. He really is. Uh, his gnome bobblehead giveaway is now selling on eBay for $100 or more. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> but, you know, the Nats' downfall last year was really their hitting. Um, you can't win the playoffs if you don't bring your guys home. And I sat through the 18-inning game to prove it. I have the battle oh, scars. You are a good fan. It was a lot of pride on the line in that game. <laughs> <laughs> the Nats are really the team to beat uh, for the whole league. But just to highlight some other good teams you might want to keep an eye on, in the National League Central Division, um, the Pirates have really reinvented themselves in the past couple years. A friend of the show added that the Pirates were once regarded as the farm league of the MLB because uh, they would sell away all of their hot prospects. But those days are gone. Uh, they're turning over a new leaf. They've got Andrew McCutcheon in center field. And they might have a good shot. Plus, you know, everybody loves an underdog. Okay, so if you want a Cinderella story, maybe follow the, the Pirates, Pirates this are for year. you. Yes. Okay. Turning to the AL East, my original division, the Boston Red Sox, my personal biases are coming through on this one. The Orioles won the division pretty handily last season, um, and the Red Sox came in last, but I'm still betting on them. To my <laughs> everlasting delight, the Yankees are probably not going to be so great again this year. And the whole A-Rod steroid storyline is just getting really sad. So don't pity the Yankees. Basically, believe in Dustin Pedroia. He is the tallest short guy you'll meet. (laughs) Uh, Can I get some context for that one? (laughs) Yes. Dustin Pedroia is listed at like 5'10 or something, but he has admitted to the media he's 5'9". But eyewitnesses say he's probably more like 5'7 on a good day or something. So this has always been a major chip on his shoulder that he's so short. That's adorable. But really the AL West are, they have, the Angels have the best player in baseball, Mike Trout. He's a young kid, like Bryce Harper, except people don't hate him. So I actually kind of want to see the Angels go all the way because I think that a Nationals-Angels World Series would be really fun to kind of put the nail in the coffin of... Who's better, Bryce Harper or Mike Trout? So yeah, that's what you should be watching out for. And uh, opening day is April 6th. And if you'd like to check out a full breakdown of all the divisions in both leagues, we're going to post a more comprehensive preview on our Facebook page, Not Your Boyfriend Sports Show. Awesome. Well, let's take a little break. And when we come back, we'll be talking about sports and femininity. Can't wait.
So for our feature topic this week, we're going to talk about femininity in sports. And when you think about women's sports, there's definitely a spectrum of femininity, whether that's real or perceived, but it gets attributed in one way or another to each sport. You know, there are the more typically feminine sports like ice skating, gymnastics, dance. Um, Seeing sparkles. (laughs) Right? Like lots of glitter, lots of grace. Um, Glitter and grace. (laughs) The Bryn Colada story. Oh, wow. I'm not sure about that. (laughs) But cheerleading is actually a particularly interesting case study because cheerleading was created as a way to encourage the men's sports, you know? There are cheerleaders on the sidelines waving pom-poms. And now the term cheerleading encompasses everything from that sideline cheerleading to team competition cheerleading, which is basically just a floor exercise of gymnastics with 20 people competing at the same time in a choreographed routine. And flips and throws and... Yeah, like very athletic maneuvers. But it's interesting that the term cheerleading encompasses all of that, and therefore there's the push to label cheerleading a sport. But I'm not quite sure I'm ready to make the jump. (laughs) You're not convinced? (laughs) I'm not sure I'm ready to label the pom-pom waving a sport. But... Then again, I come from a sport on the more masculine end of the spectrum <laughs> in soccer, so I'm not sure I can provide an unbiased opinion on this one. Well, moving on to maybe a more clear-cut example. Sure. Um, let's talk about gymnastics, because that's sort of like one step up. It's still considered to be a pretty feminine sport, although it definitely includes a lot of strength. Those girls are like 200% muscle. Well, and I think that's part of the reason that women's gymnastics is more popular than men, because you see these little petite girls in very feminine dress, and they go out and exhibit just insane strength yeah. in their all of their activities. I think all of these have a lot to do with the grace of the athletes. Hmm. So it's not just about the physical exertion and your, your muscles and your physical strength. It's about the way you conduct yourself. Um, like how, a whole package. Yeah, it's it's your presentation. Like you're putting on a performance. It's yeah. not just um, competition. It's yeah. also like appearances. Um, and actually that leads well into ice skating, which is a really good example of all of those things because skaters are actually rated on the aesthetic qualities of their performance as well as the athletic qualities. Oh, wow. So one of the biggest things in men's figure skating is that most skaters say that you have to have a quad jump included in your routine to be an elite men's skater. Okay. But some men are really great competitors and are just more artistic skaters as opposed to athletic skaters. Okay. But they get marked down because they don't have this quad jump that has become like a mainstay, like a checkbox for them to need to get a high score. What about on the women's side? On the women's side, they look more for the the artistic skaters. So while you have huh. to have a lot of the jumps, there's no like one jump that you have to you have to be able to complete to show your athleticism. So they're being graded on a different combination of standards. Exactly. And so there's definitely still a stigma against the more effeminate male figure skaters because 
there's a still a desire for a display of masculinity within the sport. That's so fascinating that even in a sport that is so dominated by the women, that to be a successful male competitor, you still have to rely on strength. Yeah, I mean, and it goes both ways because there are now female figure skaters who really like the more powerful style and they're getting marked down because they're not doing all of the all the more delicate and graceful moves. Wow. They're going for the bigger, stronger jumps. So I think figure skating sort of needs a reframing and like a way to accept the different styles of skaters between the genders. It doesn't seem right to grade all females on their artistic ability and all men on their strength. Like right. it right. just it doesn't fit all skaters. I think it does a disservice to the sport. So Okay, so our discussion about different judging standards in figure skating is actually pretty relevant when you consider sports that have a distinct male and female version. For instance, softball versus baseball. Most people would probably say that baseball is a more difficult game. It has a smaller ball. Baseball pitchers throw faster. It's thus harder to hit a baseball. But if you, have, if you take a few other elements into account, you might be surprised. So first consider that baseball pitchers throw from a raised mound, and it softball is- Softball doesn't? Nope, softball throws from a flat surface. I never knew that. Yeah, and baseball, um, there's a longer distance between the plate and the pitcher's mound. And it is true that baseball pitchers pitch faster, but if you do some simple math, softball players actually have less reaction time because a 70 mile per hour uh, softball will reach the plate in about 0.35 seconds, whereas a 90 mile per hour baseball will reach the plate in about 0.44 seconds, which doesn't seem like a lot, but in swing time. Because of the shorter distance from the mountain to the plate? Right. So because of how because of how fast you're throwing versus the distance traveled. Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah. But basically, when you're just looking at fastballs, softball hitters have less time to react. So basically, girls rule. But there are other sports like hockey and lacrosse where the rules of the game are really, really similar. The one major difference being checking. So checking means body-to-body contact where uh, it's unrelated to the position of the ball. So in the women's versions of these games, you can't do it. In the men's versions, you can. Um, and in both of the men's versions, it brings this element of condoned violence to the game. And the case is just no more clear than in hockey. So in the men's game, if a player feels like he's been really egregiously fouled, it's totally kosher for them to you know throw off their mitts and start punching at each other. Yeah, and the fans love that. Oh, they love it. Absolutely. But to this effect, there's a type of player in hockey called an enforcer, and their primary primary purpose is intimidation. So he's supposed to be so nasty that other players will supposedly not foul as much for fear that they might have to fight him, basically. Oh, and it's supposed to be this sort of like self-policing kind of uh, thing. But... In 2011, three of these enforcers were found dead, all young guys, and they were all apparent suicides or accidental overdoses. And so these players are less valuable to their organizations than goalies or major scorers, 
they make less money and they're obviously more prone to injury in a shortened career. And so there are some real psychological ramifications to all of this. So they're just living under this constant fear and expectation that they're just going to have to go out and fight. It's like being a gladiator or something. Yeah, on a team of people who don't have the same expectation. Right. Which is crazy. So that's like... That's a very prominent part of the men's game. Is there any equivalent in the women's? No, and this is part of the point. And it's not just in hockey. It's in uh, lacrosse. It's in soccer. That one of the critiques of the men's game is that it becomes so violent. Whereas the women's game, some people find it even more enjoyable because the game is less built around strength and brawn and more on finesse and team play. And... Hmm. um, I mean, you see it in soccer all the time where men, the men are just being so dramatic. They're diving all over the place trying to get a foul call. That type of mentality just doesn't exist as much in the women's game. Yeah, it seems like the fouls and, and the resulting penalty kicks make, such a bi- make up such a bigger part of the men's game than the women's. Oh, absolutely. So I guess, you know, my question all of this is like, you know, is the women's game really so boring that you have to have all of the violence and the checking and the fights in order to make fans want to watch? I mean, I guess that, like, Mm. historically the answer is yes, and that's why the model prevails. Do you think it's just that the pace of play is slower for women? I mean, that's sort of the consistent argument, right, that women's games are so much slower. But it's such a different strategy. You can't just have one dominating player. You really have to have a whole team that works together, puts passes together, has much more fluidity. Well, actually, now that I think about it, that's that's part of the game that makes, um, for example, in volleyball, um, that sort of strategy and anticipation and like the suspense of the women's volleyball game is so much more than the men's game. Because in the men's game, if if a setter hits a good set, then your hitter will just come and bury the ball. And because he, because the ball speed in men's volleyball is so much higher, there's very little chance that the other team's going to be able to dig that ball and keep the possession going. Yeah. Whereas in the women's game, when someone gets ready to spike, there's always a chance for the other team to get set and defend and then mount their own attack. So it's a lot more back and forth. It's a lot more anticipation in the game. And that's that's part of the reason that women's volleyball has remained so prominent while men's hasn't gained the same popularity. So I guess in some sports it works to the advantage of the women's game and others, they get slighted for that, that lower pace of play. Yeah, and I think that you also see the same kinds of critiques in tennis because kind of the same principle of volleyball where the serve and being able to ace on the serve is such a big part of the men's game. But in the women's games, much like in volleyball, the returns are actually, it's so much easier for women to score on their opponent's serve than it is in the men's game. And tennis is actually, it might be the saving grace kind of, of, of quality of the, of the sexes in sports. It's really a case study in how men and women's sports can be similarly popular if there's a really purposeful strategy behind it. So tennis is one of the rare sports where men and women have achieved something close to pay equity. 
So And popularity. It seems like you know the same amount of female figureheads in tennis as men. Oh, definitely. So, for instance, Roger Federer last year was the number one men's player, and he made $82 million. Serena Williams, the top female player, made $56 million, and that's still definitely a gap, but those are the top players. And if you look at the majority of players, the people who are ranked, you know, 10 through whatever, that's where you see how much the pay equity has really evened out. An interesting tidbit is that on Forbes' Top 100 Richest Athletes list, only three women appeared, and they were all tennis players. Wow. And, I mean, turn to team sports and just forget about it. Yeah, do you think some of that parody comes from them being individual sports? Definitely. I mean, we were talking earlier in the This Week in Sports section about the Women's Hockey League and paying players, and... BuzzFeed put together a list of 50 NBA players whose individual salaries were larger than the total combined salaries of the whole WNBA. Oh my god. Yeah. You know, there there are a couple theories why tennis has kind of broken the mold, and this is where that kind of purposeful strategy comes in. First of all, the tournaments, the Grand Slam tournaments, so US Open, Australia Open, Wimbledon, they have the same prize money for men and women across the board. And so that's like a tennis association decision that they're going to pay the players the same. Well, it's actually tournament by tournament. Like Wimbledon didn't catch up till 2007. And it's not true of some of the lower tournaments. But the majors, which are those three, Mm -hmm. have all made the decision that the prize money, which is somewhere in the like 600 to 700,000 range, is going to be the same for for men and women. That's great. And the other thing that the tennis tournaments do is that men and women play simultaneously. Which if you think of like the World Cup, there's the Men's World Cup one year and then the Women's World Cup another year. True. So you get sort of the same set of spectators to go to both the men's and the women's. Exactly. So there's a lot more exposure. They get relatively equal airtime. So this leads to more endorsements for women. It leads to bigger fan bases for women. And so these things all combine in this cycle where equal exposure, equal pay, equal endorsements equal fans, it all reinforces each other so that women in tennis can really make a sustainable lifestyle out of it, unlike so many of these other sports that we've discussed. I think the other thing that came up, and I know that you noticed this too in some of the sports that you looked at, there is this debate among female athletes about whether they want to shape their bodies for performance or for appearance. Mm -hmm. And I think... What was the example about Serena Williams? Well, there was a Vogue article with Serena Williams where she was talking about her friendship with other elite female tennis players. She mentioned that in in her life, her entire career, she's tried not to lift too many heavy weights and she she uses resistance bands instead of like dumbbells so that her body stays lean and and feminine as opposed to getting too bulky so definitely even at the top of the top of women's elite athletes like she's still very conscious of how she's presenting her body and and in making sure that she still represents feminine beauty and I think that's definitely coming through just in the fact that she's doing a cover shoot and a feature article for Vogue which is you know definition femininity I think that this also reminds me there was um, when I was looking into boxing and boxing is a really interesting example because both versions men and women 
they've taken this really, really masculine sport. And for the women, they're still trying to find ways to feminize it. Mm -hmm. And they're still trying to find ways to make the boxers appear sexier, more alluring, all these kind of feminine qualities. One of the women who was chosen for the Olympic team, there was some criticism of that because they thought that, you know, all other things being equal in terms of skill and prowess and all those things, that she was chosen largely because she had a more mainstream feminine appeal. Hmm. And in the aftermath of the Olympics, most of the features about her were about her body and about um, her looks. And she did, you know, a Vogue cover spread and things like that. And it received some criticism of like, you know, women's boxing didn't make as many waves as they were hoping in the aftermath of the Olympics. And what did we get out of it other than, you know, more taking female athletes and making them into models? Yeah. That's really interesting because I was reading a um, a sports psychology study, um, which was basically saying they interviewed female athletes who participated in more feminine sports and more masculine sports, and they came out with the conclusion that women who participated in more masculine sports were more comfortable with their bodies and and the more as more masculine aspects of their bodies as opposed to the women who participated in the more feminized sports and they were more likely to try to lose weight and try to shape their bodies in a more feminine way whether or not it contributed to their performance in their sport that is so interesting yeah it's kind of contrary to that boxing example but it's it gets into sort of the attitudes that that surround these sports and whether or not you're encouraged to keep building your body for the performance of your sport or whether you're you're trying to bolster your appearance while competing in these sports. And I think that's especially interesting considering our conversation about gymnastics where it's kind of an open secret that a lot of the girls who start so young doing gymnastics uh, because of how much they work their bodies that they kind of have stunted pubescent development so they don't get their periods on time if they do they're not regular so I think that's really fascinating in terms of how women shape their body so much for one purpose or another yeah and the motivations can be totally different depending on the sport and their attitudes yeah absolutely I mean even I mean going later in life to a different developmental stage but even just earlier today, you and I uh, were talking about Bill Simmons' podcast, and he was talking to Abby Wambach and Alex, Alex Morgan. Morgan. And Abby Wambach is 34 years old. She basically tells Bill Simmons, yeah, after this World Cup, I'm out. She says, there are other things that I want to do with my life. And his response is, really? <laughs> and she goes, yeah, you know, I'd like to have a family and that whole bit. And It was such a funny juxtaposition to me that, of course, that's nothing that Bill Simmons would ever think about. But for Abby Wambach, that's like such a reality. If she wants to have children, she can't be... She can't keep training the way she's training. Right. It was fascinating. Yeah. All right. So switching gears a little bit, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll introduce our newest segment, Fierce Ladies. Fierce Ladies. Fierce ladies, kicking butt, taking names. Bryn, who is our inaugural fierce lady? 
Well, fitting with the topic of the episode, our first fierce lady is someone who's kicking ass in a predominantly male sport. Woo! We're talking about Ronda Rousey. She's in UFC, Ultimate Fighting Championship, and she is just an unstoppable fighter. She has this move called the arm bar, where she basically dislocates her opponent's elbows by trapping one arm in her thigh and applying pressure. What? And she beat someone in 14 seconds with this move. From like start to finish, this girl had never lost before. And Ronda Rousey just like pulled her signature move, pinned her, and it was over before it even started. Like, miss it if you ran to get a beer or something. Yeah, she's so impressive. And she basically, in a lot of different ways, lots of people have said that she could beat a lot of male UFC fighters. But when she was asked asked about it, she said she doesn't think it's a great idea to have a man hitting a woman on television. She'll never say that she's going to lose, but you could have a girl getting totally beat up by a, a guy on TV, which doesn't look great for the sport. But... Ronda Rousey is undefeated in UFC. She's won nine of her 11 matches by this armbar move. So clearly no one's found a way to counteract it yet. So even though they know it's coming, it's just so They're powerless. There's nothing anyone can do. Yeah, and there was this awesome segment where a reporter was just like joking around and asked her to pin him. And like obviously (laughs) that's not going to end well for you. So she... In her first, like, takedown of him, I think she cracked some ribs. And he's just, like, lying there on the floor, like, writhing, and she gets up laughing. And it's like, oh, did I I really hurt you? Oh, God. (laughs) I'm sorry. She's fiercer than I expected. Yeah. It's awesome to watch her. She is all power. So Ronda Rousey is our fierce lady for this week. Deserving. We'll be bringing you a couple more features every every few episodes but until then you can find us on social media Mm -hmm. we're at not your boyfriend sports show on facebook on twitter at at nybf sports on instagram nybf sports and you can email us at not your boyfriend sports show at gmail.com or nybf sports at gmail.com we are officially on itunes soundcloud and stitcher search for our show name give us a good rating we will be forever grateful I think that about does it. So good game, Bryn. Good game, Maeve. (laughs)